Hello and welcome to a brand new podcast, Humanity on the Hill, a nonpartisan podcast focused on listening to conflicting points of view, discussing the most pressing issues of our society today, and understanding that which unifies and equalizes every single one of us, our humanity. I am your host, Luis Delgadillo, and today we have the pleasure of having former congressman and current director of the Cornell University Institute of Politics and Global Affairs in New York City, Steve Israel. He is here to talk about his perspective on the Democratic nominee race and the upcoming November debate. Congressman Israel has left Capitol Hill unindicted and undefeated as the former representative for New York's 2nd Congressional District up until the year 2013 and then New York's third congressional district representative until his retirement from Congress in 2017. He has chaired the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee from 2011 to 2015 and the Democratic Policy and Communications Committee from 2015 to 2017. To begin with, Congressman Israel, I wanted to thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to sit down with us. And Luis, I'm really delighted to be here and really proud of this podcast. I wish you a lot of luck with it, and I'm honored to be part of it. For those of us who are not too familiar with politics and the inner workings of our political system, how would you characterize your role in the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee? Well, I served in Congress from Long Island for 16 years, from 2001 to 2017. And my principal job was being a representative of the people. Uh, and that meant responding to their concerns, thinking about their views, their ideologies, and casting my votes on the floor of the House uh, in, in a way that I thought was effectively embracing uh, and, and fighting for them. My other job was more partisan, quite bluntly. I was uh, asked by Nancy Pelosi to chair the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. Uh, each party uh, on Capitol Hill has a campaign committee. The Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, which I chaired, has uh, one job and had one job, and that is to elect Democrats to the House of Representatives. Uh, our counterparts uh, are the National Republican Campaign Committee. Uh, the job of the NRCC is also singularly focused, and that is to elect more Republicans uh, to the Congress. And uh, so my job was to recruit candidates, to raise money. Uh, to help determine the strategies in uh, critical races, to defend Democratic incumbents, to go out and see if we could defeat some Republicans. Uh, it's, it's considered to be the campaign, the chief campaign strategist uh, to the House Democrats. Was there ever a time where uh, your professional mission conflicted with your moral ideals? Well, it's a great question, and the answer is no, and here's why. If you are a Republican member uh, of Congress, if you're a Republican candidate, and you come to Capitol Hill, you're going to vote to keep the Republicans in the majority. No matter how moderate a Republican you may be, the fact of the matter is that what your first vote as a new member of Congress uh, is to select a Speaker of the House. And if Republicans are in the majority, it's going to be a Republican speaker. If you're a Democrat, it's, it's the same deal. Your first vote is going to be to select a Speaker of the House. When we had a Republican majority in the House of Representatives, and this is my own personal view and doesn't reflect the views of Cornell, obviously, 
but as a member of Congress, as a member of the Democratic leadership, when we had a Republican majority in the House of Representatives, I felt that that majority wasn't really going to bat for the middle class, wasn't protecting students from high tuition and um, predatory lenders, uh, wasn't doing much to uh, exercise diplomacy around the world versus just sending in uh, the military. Uh, was backtracking, if not going into a full reversal on women's rights, was undermining civil rights, was excoriating the LGBTQ community. And that agenda is not one that I subscribe to. Uh, unfortunately, if you are an elected Republican uh, to Congress, you are de facto supporting that agenda by choosing a Republican speaker. Now, in fairness, uh, there are many people who are not happy with the Democratic agenda. Uh, in, uh, in the House of Representatives now that Democrats have the majority, and it is the obligation of every new Democratic member of Congress to vote for a Democrat for Speaker of the House. I just prefer the Democratic majority to a Republican majority. You obviously care a lot about accurately representing the people in your district, your constituents. How do you deal with people that have opinions contrary to yours? How do you manage to find that compromise? It's a, another great question. So I represented a very moderate congressional district. In fact, Luis, when I went to Congress, uh, I flipped the district that had been represented by a Republican member of the House of Representatives, uh, and he was winning, you know, 70, 75, 80 percent of the vote. And then by uh, a fluke, some would argue, I suddenly represent the district as a Democrat. And the constituency in that district was quintessentially moderate. It was a right-of-center, left-of-center district, tended to be more uh, right-of-center on taxes and uh, fiscal issues and more left-of-center on social uh, issues. And, and frankly, that's, that's how I went to Congress, and that's how I've always been. I have been uh, fairly... Um, moderate on fiscal issues and certainly to the right of my party on national security issues. Uh, but you can't get to the left of me on the environment, on LGBTQ rights, on women's rights, on investments in education, etc. There were times, however, when I really found myself in, in a bit of a uh, moral crisis slash political crisis. And I'll, I'll share one with you. Um, the notion of Burning an American flag was extremely unpopular in my congressional district. We polled it. Uh, people just thought that you shouldn't be able to burn an American flag, and people continue to believe that. My own view was that the First Amendment covers uh, lots of heinous acts and some heinous speech. And once we start making exceptions to the First Amendment that don't square with the Supreme Court decisions on First Amendment rights, then we risk really whittling it down. And uh, my political advisor said, if you vote uh, against a constitutional amendment with the which the Republicans offered that would ban flag burning, you probably aren't going to get reelected. It's a very unpopular position. The easy political vote would have been to support the constitutional amendment to ban flag burning. My, my own conscience, my own sense of morality uh, didn't allow me to do it. And so what happened? I cast a vote against that amendment and then spent months visiting every veteran's post that I could find, the American Legion uh, and uh, the VFW and disabled war veterans, anybody I could find, and I had town meetings. And this is what I learned. If you are 
willing to treat people with whom you disagree respectfully and engage in discourse rather than pontificating, you're going to come to, if not agreement, at least an understanding of one another. And that's what I was able to do. I mean, we have all seen the polls rise and fall as a result of many things. The first two debates, the perceived electability of each candidate, each campaign's financial standings, and even Senator Sanders' recent hospitalization and subsequent recovery. How do you interpret the current trends in the approval and support for each candidate? So the first thing I would say is presidential campaigns, like many campaigns, are very, very fluid. Mm -hmm. And so you see that fluidity uh, in, in the past several presidential campaigns. Um, when Donald Trump announced that he was running for president, nobody believed that he was going to be a factor. He was polling at 1-2% in the early months after his announcement, and he's president of the United States. And so you see races t narrow, and you see them expand. And I think what's going on with the Democrats right now is a reflection of that. There's a narrowing and then an expansion. Uh, Vice President Biden continues to lead uh, in most polls. It's a little slimmer than, than it was, or maybe a lot slimmer in some cases. But he, he continues to have a pretty good position. Um, I am a Nancy Pelosi uh, describes uh, a, a true political operative as having two ventricles. That is to be kind of reptilian, <laughs> right? Uh, and so I have a very diagnostic, cold-blooded reptilian view of of this race, and that is that my party needs to win. And so I want a candidate who can win, mm -hmm. who can beat uh, President Trump. Again, my own view. Now, um, if you take a look at the status, status of the electorate, um, there's three things that people must know. And if, for those who are listening to this podcast, commit this to memory. Take out a piece of paper, take out your devices, write this down. One, this election will be won or lost in only seven states. Those are seven battleground states in the Electoral College. Two, there are about 20 to 30 counties in those states that this election will matter. In other words, uh, in New York City, newsflash, Donald Trump is losing New York City, right? So that New York City doesn't really count in terms of winning the Electoral College. In uh, Montana, newsflash, Donald Trump is winning Montana. So Montana doesn't count with respect to this election. It's not going to change the Electoral College. There are seven states that do, uh, and 20 to 30 counties. So I... Bottom line, I want somebody who can win in those counties and in those states. Those counties and states are swing counties and states. They voted for Obama and then voted for Trump. Uh, they are, tend to be very moderate. They tend to reject extremes. They tend to want compromise and consensus. Uh, and so I want a candidate who will appeal to those areas, who, and in my view, uh, somebody like a Joe Biden is, despite all the, the fire he's taken, is still best equipped and most popular in those critical areas that Democrats must win. What are those seven states that matter? So this, this is a presidential election, yes. but apparently only seven of the 50 right. states matter. So which... We call this a national presidential election. It's not. It's seven statewide elections in the Electoral College. So it's, for example, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. Arizona, North Carolina, Florida, Ohio. Those are seven states. Now, some say, well, it's really eight. Some say it's really six. Let's round it out to seven. Those states determine who's going to win. So why is Donald Trump president of the United States? Because he won Pennsylvania and he won Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. 
Had Hillary Clinton won those states, she'd be president. We'd have a much different country right now. So we need to focus, my party needs to focus on those seven states with somebody who can win in those states. So Biden is your guy, but is there another candidate that you think can be Donald Trump in these seven crucial states? So right now, virtually every Democrat, not all of them, but virtually every announced Democrat in the polls in those states is is leading Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. um, but that's very misleading. And the reason for that is that uh, it's not a head-to-head -head yet. So a pollster goes to Wisconsin and says, if the election were between Donald Trump and any of the Democrats, who would you vote for? And the answer is, I'd vote for a Democrat. Well, that's because many of the other Democrats haven't had their negatives aired out yet. So people, they look real good right now. When you get into a head-to-head -head after the Democratic convention and the Republican convention, and it's Trump versus a Democrat, it really narrows. I'm really intrigued, I have to say, uh, by uh, Pete Buttigieg. I think that he you know, represents something new and something fresh, and he's thoughtful, and he's got military experience that really does appeal to those, um, those bellwether areas. I think Elizabeth Warren um, you know, is probably one of the most substantive uh, candidates that we have, uh, and there are others as well. It's just too early to make a judgment. Uh, based on a gut instinct, and so I'm going to continue to take a look at the data, and the data says, and the polls show, and my own, frankly, affinity for Joe Biden, who I know very well, <laughs> I have to be truthful, uh, suggests to me that uh, he, he is the m most capable Democrat of beating Trump in those areas. Some critics would suggest that uh, former Vice President Biden is Losing it, um, that he's too old now, that Trump's going to eat him alive, that he just is yeah. not there anymore, that he's forgetting a lot of things. What do you think about Well, this? first of all, I, I really do reject ageism. Um, you know, for people to suggest that, you know, he's just too old, particularly against this president who's not much younger uh, and uh, who has demonstrated, this president has demonstrated, uh, uh, to put it nicely, um, a, a certain immaturity in how he deals with other human beings, other countries, et cetera, I think is unfair. Um, there's no question that um, Biden's been taking a lot of firepower. And, you know, he's in a really interesting position. He's not only being attacked by other Democrats, he's being attacked by the President of the United States. I mean, usually you fight on one front, but he has to fight on two. Yeah. He's, so he's getting criticized by other Democrats, and he's being criticized in tens of millions of dollars worth of uh, media thrown against him uh, by Trump and Giuliani. Uh, and, you know, that does take its effect on, uh, on, on people. I'm just confident, knowing, as, knowing him as I do, and I know him very well, uh, that his judgments uh, and his ability to work with both sides of the aisle uh, and his ability to bring people in uh, who are the smartest and best equipped human beings for different jobs in, in the White House and in cabinets uh, will be refreshing for the country. These seven states, these 20, 30 counties in each state, what are the issues that matter to them? What will make question. them go out and vote for a Democrat instead of Donald Trump? It's such a good question. And the answer is, it depends on where they are. So there's a, one of my favorite sayings in politics was by uh, former Speaker of the House Tip O'Neill, a very liberal Democrat from Massachusetts. He said, all politics is local. And in my view, so is message. 
So I traveled all around the country when I chaired the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. It was the coolest and, and most informative job that, that I had in politics because I got to talk to voters in Kenosha County, Wisconsin, and got to talk to voters in Youngstown, Ohio, and got to talk to voters in Maricopa County, Arizona, and Pinellas County, Florida. And guess what? They have different things on their minds based on what is happening in their local communities, based on what is happening uh, to their pocketbooks, based on demographics. If they have kids in college, they worry about whether they're going to be able to pay, help pay for their kids. Uh, their kids worry about whether they're going to be able to afford to get through. And then if they get through, is there a job? You know, And so that demographic, you know, the issue of future workforce and college affordability is, is very high. If you are a voter uh, in rural Illinois, uh, or in Iowa, in certain areas, you're worried about Trump's tariffs. You're worried about soy. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're a voter in Wisconsin, up north in the Iron Range, you, you're thinking about steel prices. If you're a voter in progressive St. Paul, uh, you are thinking about a, a, a different range of issues. So a good candidate taps into that very local message environment and uh, has to make sure that he or she is resonating. If we take the time to look at each of the Democratic uh, nominees' campaign finances, it seems that former Vice President Biden has reached a plateau. He raised, what, $9 million approximately in the last quarter compared to Senator Sanders' $24, $25 million yeah. and we're in about the same quantity. Mm -hmm. I mean, we all know how important finances are to a successful campaign, but how do you think this is going to affect... Uh, former president, uh, Vice President Biden. Well, you uh, you said that we all know how important finances are to a campaign. If I had my way, finances would be unimportant to campaign. We'd have public financing because mm -hmm. the, the influence of money uh, in all levels of politics is just pervasive and, uh, and at times insidious. And we shouldn't be in a democracy where a, a public office goes to the highest bidder. It's just fundamentally wrong. Uh, with respect to uh, Vice President Biden, yeah, his, his fundraising slowed down for a while. Um, and that's because, as I said before, he was just taking it on. He was fighting on two fronts. You know, so every time you heard a reference to Biden, it was either Trump bashing him or other Democrats bashing him. That does have its consequences. Um, but he actually has picked up since then. So his digital fundraising has vastly improved. Uh, he's doing very well and doing much better, I should say, in, in terms of uh, grassroots dollars. Um, and so he's making the adjustments that every candidate makes uh, to ensure that they have the resources to get their message out. He's got to do better. Mm. Is there something you think his campaign or he is doing wrong? You know, it's, I, I learned it's so easy to criticize a campaign from the outside without understanding what's going on inside. And, you know, I was the most, uh, and so was the chair, I and the chairman of the Republican Congressional Campaign Committee used to bemoan the fact that we broke the world's records in being second-guessed for our, for our strategies and tactics. So if you don't have the complete picture uh, of what's happening in a campaign or with a candidate, um, then uh, a, a judgment is, I think, sloppy and uninformed. So I can't, you know, I have my own thoughts on could he have done better on certain things? Could any of the candidates have done better on certain things? It's always easy to sit in, you know, in the stands and say the team on the field could have done a play better. But when you're on the field, it's a little more complicated. So I, I wouldn't make the judgment from where I sit.
I sit in the cheap seats now. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, of course, it's difficult to kind of understand all of the underlying factors in any campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, but what would you see in a winning campaign? Who is, not who is going to win, but mm-hmm. how are they going to win yeah. this nomination? So I think we're in a really unique environment. Um, we're in an environment of political volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. We're in an environment where people have lost faith in institutions. They've lost faith in government. American, uh, American support for the institution of government is now at the worst levels since they've been polling this stuff. And so I think a winning candidate does what Donald Trump did in 2016, but in a constructive way, not a destructive way, taps into those anxieties, recognizes that the American people are worried about globalization, and they're worried about automation, and they're worried about future workforce, and they're worried about the economy, and they're worried about their security. And I'm not sure that we can assuage those concerns with a 42-point plan, which is what my party usually does. We have a 42-point plan. No. You, gotta, you have to be able to connect to people's guts. You have to be able to project an empathy with them. You have to be able to leave them with a sense that, you get, that you know, this guy or this woman gets me. Donald Trump won the presidency by doing just that. Now, I think he was wrong on every issue, and I think many of the people who thought he was right now think he's, he was wrong. But we need somebody with the, uh, with the emotional connection with voters that Donald Trump established in 2016, even though he did lose the popular vote. Definitely. Um, so the last midterms, there was a forecasted blue wave that was supposed to mm-hmm. uh, sweep over the entire country, or at least a big portion of it. Uh, and while the Democratic Party did manage to turn out a lot, of, yeah. Yeah, a lot of offices, mm-hmm. um, a lot of people attributed to the fact that it wasn't joined in with the presidential election. Mm -hmm. Do you think that now having Donald Trump mobilize Mm -hmm. his base, do you think that some of those offices are going to turn back or do you think that like the Democratic Party can hold on to those seats? Uh, So every, I I actually taught this course uh, on the midterm elections uh, at uh, at both University of Chicago and Tufts University. So I have, I've, I've plumbed the depths of midterm dynamics. First, every midterm election after a president's first election is always a referendum on that president. And on all but four occasions, the president's party has lost seats in that first midterm. So it is always president gets elected and two years later, his, and I hope one day her party does worse. A presidential election is even more of a referendum on the president because the president's at the top of the ballot. Um, So in the current environment, Uh, I think that, I mean, in in 2018, the Democrats flipped 40 seats in the House of Representatives. They're probably going to lose some seats. I mean, there were 30 Democrats in districts that Donald Trump won. So I expect that they're going to lose some of those seats. But at this point, it doesn't look remotely like they're going to lose the majority. I think they're going to retain the majority. The Senate is a tougher deal for Democrats. I mean, they've got to pick up uh, seats. And, you know, there are five. Right now, I, I count four or five Republicans who uh, could be uh, in trouble, who have tough races. But the Democrats have a couple that they have to defend, including Senator Jones in Alabama. Um, so I, I don't know where this lands. I mean, I'm, I, right now, if the election were held today, 
and it's not. Um, I, you know, I think that depending on who the nominee is, the Democrats win the presidency, retain the House, uh, but the Republicans probably retain the majority in, in the Senate. That, it's so fickle, it could change tomorrow. You said five seats. Do you, do you think you could uh, illustrate us as to... In the Senate? Yes. Yeah, so uh, uh, Senator Ernst in Iowa, uh, Senator Cory Gardner in Colorado, Senator Susan Collins in Maine, Senator Tom Tillis in North Carolina, uh, Senator Martha McSally in Arizona. These are not red or blue states. They're pink states now. They're purple states. Uh, and Donald Trump... Uh, if he continues to do what he's doing, he keeps doubling down on his base, but doesn't appeal to moderate voters, and those moderate voters abandon him, they're likely to abandon you know, a, a Republican senator who stands with them. Uh, so those senators, I think, are, you know, they've really got to be uh, looking over their shoulders at all, at, uh, at all times. And uh, I want to refer back to the recent Senate race in Texas, you know, Uh, although O'Rourke, former Congressman O'Rourke, was not elected, I, at least I consider yeah. that campaign a success. I mean, 200,000 votes separating yeah. a blue Texas from a red Texas. Yeah. Do you think either Cruz or uh, John Cornyn are in trouble in these upcoming elections, or do you think they're, they're good at their seats? I'll tell you, if Beto O'Rourke was running, they'd be in trouble. Um, and I served with him uh, and um, had a really good relationship with him. In fact, I just uh, heard from him recently on something. Um, He is spectacular, and right now, he'd kill me for saying this, <laughs> but right now, I don't see the path for him to the presidency. I do see a paved path to the Senate. And if we could put Texas really in play, uh, number one, it obviously uh, increases or it helps level the playing field for Democrats. Number two, from a strategic perspective, it forces the Republicans to play in a state they didn't think they would play in, which means they've got to raise money and they've got to put together a field staff and they've got to really go in heavily against a Beto O'Rourke, which means there's less resources and less attention on other Republicans in competitive states. So the more competitive districts and states you put into play, the better it is. Beto is a natural. I mean, if he got in, I, I really do believe that um, uh, based on what happened uh, when he ran for the Senate last time, uh, he would make this a very, very close election and 50-50 um, that he would win it. Mm. And even if he doesn't win it, he could do something like he did in Texas where he helps turn other offices at the local level. There's no question he would have yeah. a down-ballot effect. And then we'll have to get him to Cornell to be a professor. <laughs> that would be amazing, right. yes. All right. I'll ask um, him. So referring to that race once again or not that race but stemming from that question mm -hmm. we had at some point what 26 candidates for the, the democratic <laughs> nomination so right. we call that right uh monstrous uh why why so many candidates because the energy and reaction to donald trump is like nuclear i've never mm -hmm. seen anything like it except for when the republicans had it in 2010 and they were reacting to donald to uh, barack obama 2010 The Republicans had this Tea Party movement. It wiped out 63 Democrats in the House of Representatives. Uh, Democrats lost the majority by a crushing number. Uh, and uh, the energy was all on the right. Now the energy is really on the left uh, and left of center. And so you think about, you know, the day after the inauguration, what happened? Millions of women took the streets. 
people just can't wait to get involved and engaged. I hear it all the time. I get emails from people who tell me I've never been involved in politics. There are elections I never voted in. How can I volunteer to vote? I mean, how can I volunteer in a campaign now? Yes. Forget voting. I'm doing that. I actually want to knock on doors and, and do phone banks. So there's massive energy uh, on the left, and that energy is reflected in the fact that you've got a massive number of people who want to run for president and defeat Donald Trump. So I guess that's one thing we have Donald Trump to thank for, right? Like more civic engagement, more people out yeah, there. Yeah, I actually said uh, to the New York Times uh, a few weeks ago that uh, the best recruiting candidate recruiting tool that the Democrats have ever had was Donald Trump. <laughs> and I think about in response to what happened in, uh, in 2016, the, the, how did the Democrats win the House of Representatives? With a tidal wave of candidates who just appeared. They didn't. Uh, my successor at the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee did not have to recruit candidates. He just had to answer the phone from people <laughs> saying, I want to run. And who ran? Women and veterans and problem solvers. And they flipped 40 Republican districts. And that was a reflection of the energy opposing President Trump from 2016 to 2018. And I believe that energy continues, uh, if not intensifies, in 2020. Hopefully that will be the case. I mean, we have individuals like Ale Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez mm -hmm. who, and most of the freshman class who I think better represent the true face of America, which is diverse in every single way. Um, let's, let's go into the impeachment hearings for mm -hmm. a bit. How do you see this affecting Donald Trump? And how do you see this affecting the next nominee for the Democratic Party? So I was initially concerned about the impact of impeachment uh, on the 2020 race. I was concerned that uh, those moderate voters, those uh, unengaged voters, would see it as uh, excessive and unwarranted. You know, the, the, they're not, these folks, they're not necessarily watching Fox News, and they're not necessarily watching Steve Israel on MSNBC. You know, they're watching their local news affiliates, right? And they're just kind of tuned out. And I was concerned that it might be perceived as a, uh, a stretch and that moderate Democrats in those, in those like 30 Trump districts were, were going to lose uh, if impeachment went forward. But Luis, you know, I told you the story about my, um, my moral wrestling with that first uh, vote uh, on flag burning. There comes a time when you just have to put the politics aside and do what's right by the Constitution and by this country. And the president, again, speaking for myself, the president's attempt to shake down a foreign leader in order to dig up dirt on an American citizen and the fact that that quid pro quo has been corroborated by uh, Army veterans and career State Department personnel who couldn't care less about partisan politics, that just, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. And if the Democrats did not begin uh, a, an appropriate impeachment inquiry for that, well, then you, you'll never see an impeachment for anything going forward. You cannot set the bar low when it comes to protecting and defending the Constitution of the United States. So for that reason and that reason alone, uh, I, I changed my, my opinion on this, and I felt that impeachment was vital. Mm -hmm. uh, now, the president will have his day in court, uh, and he will be able to defend himself. This will be a trial. And uh, people will make whatever judgments they want. But you cannot allow this behavior and these abuses to go unanswered without any oversight. Because then there will never be oversight on any president in the future, Democrat or Republican. 
Yeah, of course. Regardless of your political affiliation, I believe that it is a responsibility to defend the Constitution. And yes. This president has given us many circumstances where he's directly attacking it, directly undermining it. And uh, I think at least there was some... Uh, Nancy Pelosi was definitely holding herself back from mm-hmm. impeachment inquiries a month mm-hmm. ago, a month and a half ago, uh, yeah. two months. Even from pressure coming mm-hmm. from all sides of the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. So do you think if this hadn't come out to light, would there be an impe- impeachment inquiry right now? Uh, I don't know because it's hypothetical, but I can tell you this. You know, I now run the Institute of Politics and Global Affairs at Cornell, as you mentioned, and we're based in New York City. She was one of our guests just a, a few months ago. Adam Schiff was a guest a few weeks ago. Uh, Reince Priebus, the president's former chief of staff, was a guest last week. So we have these amazing thought leaders, people who are in the know. When Speaker Pelosi, who I'm very close to, came and spoke to the Cornell Institute of Politics and Global Affairs uh, in, several months ago, uh, her view was that impeachment was, would be tricky, uh, could have some political ramifications that could result in the re-election of Donald Trump and a Republican majority in both uh, houses of Congress, and that the president's conduct at that time was received as kind of muddled by the American people. Everything changed with that Ukraine phone call. It was clear to the American people. And how do I know? Because before a week before that call, public support for impeachment was like in the 30s or 40s. But after that call, and the weeks after that call, public impeachment for an impeachment for, I'm sorry, public support for an impeachment inquiry uh, went to the mid to high 50s. Americans are pretty smart. They know a, th- a bully when they see one. They know thuggish behavior when they see it. And there is no escaping that phone call. Great. Um, to, touch a little, to touch a little bit on the left side of the Democratic Party, um, you have uh, leaders like the squad, you know, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez once again, uh, these representatives who represent different mm-hmm. ideals than the center of the Democratic Party or other other uh, facets in the Democratic Party. Um, a few weeks ago, I want to say that uh, Trump directly attacked the squad, right? Mm-hmm. And in doing so, he gathered the entire Democratic Party to stand behind them and back yeah. them up. Yeah. And the sort of uh, painting the Democratic Party as they're turning into mm-hmm. these uh, far left or leftist politicians. Do you think that's going to affect the Democratic Party being perceived as socialist or far left? Do you think this was the purpose of the Trump administration? Yes. So here's uh, I, c- I can tell you what the bumper sticker of the Trump administration of the Trump campaign will be. Although the words are too lengthy for a bumper sticker. You may loathe me but you must fear them. That is the strategic messaging imperative for the Trump campaign. They know that he is disliked and even loathed. And so what they must do is scare people about his opponents. Mm -hmm. You may loathe me, but you must fear them. And so he's trying to paint the entire Democratic Party as a group of socialists. Why? Because of the counties and the states I, I mentioned before. Because if you're a moderate voter in Kenosha County, Wisconsin, who can vote for a Republican or a Democrat, you may detest Donald Trump, but you don't want socialists, socialism in the United States. As, as virtuous as some may believe it is, uh, those voters who Democrats must have to win reject it. 
Uh, and so you can expect to see for the next uh, 12 months Donald Trump focusing on three characterizations of the Democratic Party, and I'll give them to you in priority order and in alphabetical order. Socialist, socialist, socialist. That's what he's going to be harping on. I feel like the politicians who can win these seven states, these 20, 30 counties, are appeal more to the center, the, the more compromising part of the Democratic Party. Do you think in doing so and uh, showcasing these ideals, these values, do you think they're going to drive the left part of our party to inaction, to not go and vote at all on election day? They can't afford to do that. So I reject the notion that a Democratic presidential candidate either has to appeal to the left or the center. You have to do both. And the Democrats did that in 2018. They won the House back by galvanizing their progressive supporters and flipping their moderate supporters. And so the best illustration I can give you of this is there are two Brooklyns in the United States. There's a Brooklyn, New York, which I'm familiar with, where the Democratic vote is very, very progressive. There's also a Brooklyn, Iowa, which used to be represented by a Republican member of Congress and is now represented by a Democratic member of Congress. Democrats won Brooklyn, Iowa and Brooklyn, New York. They did it by not discounting one over the other, not excluding one over the other, but by presenting a blueprint uh, for progress in both communities, by appealing to people's values, and by tapping into their anxieties. You cannot exclude one. You've got to appeal to both, and I think a, a good Democratic candidate will do that. So you think now the face of the Democratic Party will be inclusivity? It has to be inclusivity. It, it has to. You don't win. You don't add by subtracting. You don't win elections by losing voters. You've got to be inclusive. And, and I'll tell you, I am so proud of the Democratic caucus. You know, when I would walk into a Democratic caucus meeting uh, in Washington, D.C., what would I see? I'd see the Congressional Black Caucus and the Congressional... Uh, Asian Pacific uh, American Islanders Caucus and the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, and I would see the Congressional LGBTQ Caucus. I would see blue dog members of Congress, Democrats on the right. I would see the Progressive uh, Caucus, Democrats on the left. I would see as many Congresswomen as Congressmen. That is a diversity we should celebrate. But you walk into a Republican conference meeting, I mean, take a look at a picture. I once tweeted that the only diversity you see is in the color of the Brooks Brothers ties that all those <laughs> congressmen wear. And so I think the uh, diversity and inclusion is a winning strategy. Not to repeat some of the questions that I've already asked you, but what is next for the Democratic Party? Uh, maybe in spite of or as a result of this next election, what, is, what does the future of the Democratic Party look like? Well, I think the Democratic Party has to focus on uh, several priorities. Priority number one is uh, understanding the unique anxieties that the American people are feeling right now uh, with respect to a changing economy. And as I said before, automation and, uh, and migration and uh, technology. Uh, the economy is really roiling and people are worried about it. It's advancing, but people feel like it's advancing without them. So the Democratic Party has to be the party of advancement uh, and has to be uh, creating uh, opportunity in education and in workforce retraining and harnessing the, 
the power and the, the platforms of our community colleges, for example, to help retrain a future workforce. So on those issues, I think we have to be really future-oriented. Uh, and secondly, I think the Democratic Party is at a moment now where if they can find a way to cement the relationship between the squad and uh, more moderate Democrats, uh, then uh, they will create a working majority for the, for the next generation. I'm concerned that Democrats right now are in this, have been in kind of a civil war. You know, you're, you're either progressive or moderate. That's not how you win elections. You've got to bind yourself together because the, your, your party represents a set of values. You may not always agree on each program, but you've got to have shared values in order to win. And you win so that you can make a difference and stop other guys from doing horrific things. So it's got to be about winning through unity. Perfect. And if you were to think of the Democratic Party as having a call to action, what is it for the this next election? What is the call to action? For every Democrat who has uh, objected to the deterioration of democracy that we're experiencing and the abuses of this president, if you've never voted, you got to vote. If you've voted but you've never volunteered, vote and volunteer. If you've voted and volunteered but you've never written a check, even if it's $3 to your favorite candidate, vote, volunteer, write a check. Luis, I used to say when I traveled the country as chairman of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, this is the most important election of your lives. But it never was. This time, I don't think anybody would quibble with the assertion that this is the most important election of our lives. And in fairness, if you're a Republican and you believe that uh, Democrats uh, don't represent your values, don't represent your priorities, then you have an equal opportunity to engage. All I ask is that after the election, we put our political weaponry down and reunite as Americans to move the country forward, even though we may have different views of what that looks like. Instead of harping on our disagreements, let's just see if we can find areas of agreement. Finally, a lot of uh, authors and academics have characterized Donald Trump's presidency as the beginning of the end for our Constitution, mm -hmm. for our democracy. To what extent do you think this is true, and do you think another four years of Trump would cement the demise of our democracy as it was once painted? It's a very timely question because I'm working on a column right now. I do a weekly column that appears in thehill.com, uh, uh, and next week's column will be the existential threat to the Constitution, to, uh, or, or existential threats to the Constitution in our history, and are, are we facing one now? And my argument is yes. Uh, so uh, the very beginning of, uh, of the American experience before the Constitution and in the years after the Constitution, there were challenges that were existential threats to the Constitution. Civil war, existential threat to the Constitution and to the nature of democracy and freedom. Um, World War II, existential threat to democracy had Nazi Germany won. Uh, the 1960s, the uh, protests and the fraying of institutions existential threat to democracy. And now this. This is an existential threat to democracy. A president who would say that he doesn't have to pay attention to the Constitution. A president who would call the emoluments clause, you know, it really doesn't exist. A president who would vilify gold star parents, who, would, who uh, makes a career out of vilifying minorities, who wants to stop certain people of certain religions from coming to our country, who said of the Constitution, 
I have Article 2, I can do whatever I want with it. Well, that would be true if it were not for Article 1, 3, 4, 5, etc. If he's reelected to a second term, in my own personal view, we really do enter a different kind of country. Uh, and he will view that as a mandate. And everything that he has done up to now, he will double and triple down on. And that turns an existential threat into uh, defeat for the democratic norms that we're used to. I, I don't want to sound too panicky about it. I don't want to make people depressed. The good news is you could do something about it. All it takes is you in order to, uh, to do something about it and put us back on a path of civility and democracy and faith in, uh, in institutions and in our fellow Americans. It seems that we have reached the end of our time, but I wanted to thank Congressman Minister once again for joining us today. And all of you for tuning in to our first ever episode of Humanity on the Hill. We hope you tune in to our next episode. We will be having Monica Ramirez, the founder of Justice for Migrant Women and the co-founder of Alianza Nacional de Campesinas. Monica Ramirez authored the Dear Sisters letter addressed to women in the entertainment industry and sparking the creation of the Time's Up Me Too movements. She'll be sharing her perspective on women empowerment and feminism, along with discussing strategies for fighting gender-based sexual harassment and achieving gender equity across industries. We encourage you to subscribe to this podcast and follow us on our social media. I also want to thank Reyes Gonzalez of Reyes Designs for producing the beautiful artwork that is brought to you today, as well as Daniel Areyev for marketing support and to our team Eric Busio and Carolina Arango for all the work that they contribute to make this podcast a reality. Thank you.